Hey, good morning. Oh, man, I hope you're all doing well. Uh, we're kind of celebrating as a staff. Um, we welcomed a new family member to uh, the staff. And many of you know uh, Victoria and, and Drew, that she's been pregnant and uh, she had her baby on Friday. And so uh, uh, they may be watching right now. You want to greet? This is Eden, Eden James right there in my hand. So. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, Drew is our campus pastor, at, uh, of course, down at Pleasant View, and, and Tori is our creative arts pastor here at the Central Campus, and so, I uh, mean, they're just, they're just proud as they can possibly be. First child, and uh, man, just such a treat, and uh, hopefully they'll be home in the next day or two, so uh, let's have a word of prayer together. Oh man, Jesus, thank you so much that we get to celebrate things like this together as a community. Thank you for your goodness to us and the gifts that you so freely bestow. Thank you, Father, for... Um, the community we enjoy that helps carry these moments. And Lord, for those times when things aren't going so great, you help carry those moments as well. The community is so powerful, so important. And we thank you for ours. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit's presence in our community. And Lord, we acknowledge in this moment how dependent we are upon you. Even in this moment, Holy Spirit, for you to speak to our hearts, for only you can bring a heart to change. And so we offer these next few moments to you, asking you to feel free to move in our midst, to move in our hearts, move in our minds. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so we're coming to the end of our marathon series. I don't think we've ever done a series this long. I think it's been like 12 weeks or something like that. So the graphics people love me for it because they haven't had to do anything for like 12 weeks. But uh, man, uh, and the bumper video, they're like, oh man, this is great. This is the best thing ever. And so um, we're going to change. This is the end of the series. And so um, we're coming to the end of it. And I was thinking about, you know, how, how do I know whether or not this worked? And so if we come to the end of this series and you were with us through the whole thing, you know, and you have this sense of, man, if I could just do a better job keeping these 10 commandments, I'll be better off. Or maybe if you have this thought, well, I just need to try a little harder if I'm going to make a go of this whole Christian thing. If you have either one of those thoughts, I have done a terrible job of communicating to you what this whole series and what these Ten Commandments are all about. You see, the law of God, listen, was never given to us to save us. It was never given to us as some stepladder to climb. And I want to kind of camp out in a passage in Romans. I said in the early service, to me, this, this particular passage is one of those that you kind of want to underline in your, in your scripture if you're into that. But here's what Paul said. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world is guilty before God. So when we read the law and we say, man, I can't measure up to that, it's working according to Paul. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. A Philip's translation of the part I have highlighted in yellow there, verse 20, is this. God gave us the straight edge of the law to show us just how crooked we really are. <laughs> uh, have you ever... Um, have you ever purchased like a diamond or something from a jewelry store? I don't have a lot of experience in this, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, but, but I, I have seen it. And so what they do, if you go to the jewelry store and you say, hey, I want to buy something expensive, then, then they take this piece of felt and they flip it out on their glass counters. Are you all familiar with this? And then they put the stone like on, on that felt. Or, or like the one Lisa and I bought because we didn't have any money. They put the stone under a microscope so we could see it, you know. <laughs> 
but some of y'all got these nice ones and, and they put it on this piece of black felt or if you're going to buy a watch or something, they put it there and they put it on this nice black felt. They just flip it out and put it on there. And the reason they do this is they want to show us the beauty of the stone so they put it in stark contrast to the dark background on which it rests. Do you understand? So the law helps us understand the immensity of our need and the provision for the provision that God has made. In other words, the law reveals the dark felt in our lives. The law says, and Jesus' teaching says, hey, there's a problem here in who we are. And Jesus took this teaching of the Ten Commandments and he applied it even closer to the soul to continue to reveal the need, our need. You've heard it was said of old, you shall not murder. But I say, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And we're like, oh, that's everybody now. You know, that's everybody. I got mad at the parkers in the church parking lot. I mean, that's me now. Or then how about this? You shall not commit adultery, you've heard it said, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her. And then we all prayed for those people who struggle with that. But the more, the more Jesus taught the Ten Commandments, the more aware we are all become of our need, our, our sins, our unrighteousness, the dark felt, if you will, in our lives. When asked what was the greatest commandment, Jesus replied with these two overarching commandments. I love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law of the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, let me, so the first four of these commandments, no other gods, no idols, don't misuse my name, keep the Sabbath holy, are summarized in love God. The next six commandments, honor your parents, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting, are summarized in the love your neighbor as yourself thing. So Jesus is stating so clearly, it's not that you have a behavior problem. It's that we have a heart problem. It's a heart problem. By the way, this is what the Old Testament was saying all along. The Pharisees just hijacked it and took it in a different direction. Here's 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but now God speaking, the Lord looks at the heart. And then Isaiah, the Lord says, these people say they're mine. They honor me with their lip action, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Even Hosea jumped in on the action. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offering action. So, so, so God has been intent on capturing people's hearts and not simply modifying our behavior. That's been God's agenda. But now a new issue has been raised that is of grave concern to me because I've already confessed and I think we've confessed together, I don't know that I can change my behavior to be good enough. And the scripture would affirm that. 
we can't behave our way out of this. So, so if I can't change my behavior, what chance do I have of changing my heart? I mean, if I can't decide I'm going to lift a coffee cup and put the coffee cup back down in a consistent way all throughout my life, if I can't do that right, what, what chance do I have of being able to change my heart? And that's the key principle that we've been camping on this entire series. The law of God shows me I'm a sinner. When we read the law, if we say, wow, I don't measure up, it's working, dark felt, and sends me to Jesus for salvation, diamond. By the way, Jesus is always the diamond in the story. So diamond, you know. Jesus then returns you to the law. Tom, now that I can change your heart, now that your heart has been changed, we've gone further upstream. Now that the heart has been changed, this is the way life works best. Follow the law. Do you see? It wasn't so much the elements weren't there. It was the order of the elements. Now, why does this matter to us and why am I bringing it to you at the end of this series? I have this growing concern in church world that maybe we have somehow bypassed God making us righteous and instead have swapped one set of Ten Commandments for another set. We've bypassed the fact that we need changing. And instead, we've created these new commandments in hopes they'll save us. Once we didn't go to church, now we go to church. Once we didn't, weren't interested in religious things, but now we're kind of are, and we've seen a couple of movies about it, and, and we even listen to music every once in a while that's kind of religious. Once we didn't feel guilty about anything, and now every once in a while we do have a little bit of guilt. Once we're not very generous, now we put a couple bucks in every week. Once we didn't even know the scriptures, but now I know a couple verses that they mentioned. And so we add all that together, and we say, well, I must be in. I've exchanged bad behaviors for better ones. Do you follow what I'm saying? So like I was this way in my teens or maybe this way in my 20s or maybe this way in my 30s or 40s or for the last five decades, but in the last eight days or years, I'm doing different things. Do you follow? And we're resting this whole thing on that. We've never actually had an impact by the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives. But instead, we're still wiping our own noses and trying to appear cleaner than we really are. Paul said, again, no one can be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we really are. Do you all remember why Jesus said he came? I know it's a loaded question because he actually said a lot of things there. But, but I said this a couple series ago, and I think it's, it, it's relevant to our conversation. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you know what's disturbing at the soul level of who I am when I read that verse? I thought I was already alive. 
He's not preaching to corpses. He's preaching to you and to me. He's saying, good folks in the alive community, I've come so that you might have life. While we're sitting here breathing, thinking, I thought we had that. And Jesus is saying, no. Why would he want to give life to people who are already alive? Because Jesus comes to give life, and what we have is not life. It is death. We're spiritually dead. How do we begin to understand our spiritual deadness? The law. The law reveals we are pretty messed up people left to ourselves. And we may desire to be different. We may manage the difference for a while. But inside, deep down, we know nothing has really changed. We're just behaving differently. The objective of the Ten Commandments in short, succinct is it reveals we must be saved and we cannot save ourselves. The Ten Commandments have revealed, my dear friends, we all have a terminal condition and we cannot behave a certain way or balance any scales to get out of this condition. And if one stops their pursuit of God at just the Ten Commandments, you will be left in a very depressing, dark spot of terminal black felt. To hear we are deeply broken and cannot fix ourselves is discouraging at best. We need help. I thought on a cold, rainy weekend, I'd just bring the whole place down. (laughs) See if we can get any further more depressed than we already are, right? I had to belabor this point, friends. I had to belabor it to get to this level. We had to go here in order to go where the message is going to take us. We have to acknowledge you don't have a problem. I have a problem. You see? This isn't their problem. This is my problem. I've got this black felt in my life, and I can't behave my way out of it. Paul. Paul then picks up this point in the passage I'm telling you we should underline, and he illumines the way forward, and I'm so thankful he does. Just as we are lost in our terminal black felt, Paul uses three of the most exciting, promise-filled, hope-bearing words in all of Scripture. But now God. But now God. Say it with me. But now God. I sat over here in worship, and I was looking across this room, and I was thinking of different times my life has interacted with some of your lives and different seasons we've all walked through together and had a lady share of a season she's struggling with in the, after the first service and just thought about that, and I thought of how time in God's hand changed. Do you remember how God led you through a certain thing, how God got you through a situation or a difficult circumstance, but now God. Isn't that great news? But now God, I want to encourage you, if you are discouraged right now, if you're going through that season, 
Remember the words, but now God, but now God is at work. That's not part of the sermon. That's all just free. That's just extra stuff right there. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him. We're no longer stuck in the terminal black felt. Lean forward because good news is coming. We need to make it right with him without keeping the requirements of the law because we can't, as was promised in the writing of Moses and the people long ago. Dear friends, do not miss the announcement of good news that is coming our way in short order. God has made a way. God has provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves. Why would God do that for us? Why did God provide something for us? There's only one reason, can only be one reason. It is because of God's great love for you. And this magnificent truth is expressed in the course we teach our children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's why you now have a way. That's why I have a way. God has provided a way out of our darkness, out of our sin, and out of our shame, and out of our failures, and out of our regrets. God has put a place in place, a path we can all follow, no matter what we are, where we have been, or what we have become, no matter our track record, no matter our successes and failures. This is good news for all of us. Lean in. This is a moment where God reveals he's going to do what I cannot do myself. The first word I would give you is salvation. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Now listen, you are not going to believe that first verse at different times in your life. So I want you to read it with me, the first sentence, if you would, out loud. We are made right with God by placing our faith Aren't you glad that his name is there and not yours? Because Tom can feel very discouraged when I forget and think it's all about what I am able to do. Anybody else? You think, man, I'm made right by what I... No, no, no. Faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for just a few people. No, friends, it's true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Why? Because everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So no mistake, you've sinned, I've sinned, your beautiful, saintly grandma sinned. I know, I'm sure she's a lovely lady, but she sinned. They've all sinned. And to believe in Jesus means to quit. Okay, this one may, you don't like, I don't, you may not like. Because in our culture, this is totally going upstream. But I think to believe in Jesus means to quit believing in myself, in my ability, in my ability for righteousness or holiness or morality, integrity. To believe in Jesus is to quit believing in myself and, and to, means to quit believing in my religion. It means to quit believing in my good deeds. It means to quit relying on anything that I believe would make me acceptable before God. And it means to come to him and say, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come 
to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And all the first-time visitors that is alive are convinced they're at a cult. All my old school people, we just had a trigger response and feel like we need to head to the altar. I'm like, come on, y'all, let's head down. (laughs) If you're new to church world, that hymn is one that many of us grew up in, has 82 verses. And uh, the preacher would keep singing them until somebody went to the altar. I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid, I went to the altar just so it would make it stop. Horrible. I mean, it's good. It was good. I mean, it's <laughs> nah, I'm in trouble. I'll tell you the second verse. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fighting in fears within and without. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. You thought it was just you that had fears and doubts within, without? No. And when a man or woman comes like that, the assurance of the gospel is that they will be saved. What I, by my own endeavor, am unable to accomplish, God, based on his great grace, has provided My next word is justification. Verse 24, same passage. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. God in his grace makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. I must tell you, things had to get darker before they could get better. While we understand our own dark felt now, what had to happen for us to experience the full force of the diamond was costly. Because something evil had to happen in order for something beautiful to be offered to me and to you. And it's important we who believe remember this. C.S. Lewis dramatized this wonderful story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first of the Chronicles of Narnia series. If you haven't read the books or seen the movies, I highly would recommend them for you to do as a family. It's a scene that graphically depicts Christ's voluntary submission and increasing powerlessness. Um, it's, a, it's a metaphor. So Aslan is the magnificent lion. I mean, he's amazing. He, he, you want Aslan to be your best friend. And, and he's the Christ figure in this story. But there comes this dramatic moment in the story where Aslan willingly turns himself over to the white witch and her evil horde in a ransom exchange for Edmund. If you want to understand the power of that, you can substitute your name for Edmund's in the story. Tom or Edmund, the young boy, had become a a prisoner to the wicked witch. Lucy and Susan, Edmund's sisters, watch from their hiding place as Aslan surrenders himself. 
And Lewis describes what the girls saw. A howl and gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them. And for a moment, even the witch herself seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come. Bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags grinning and leering, yet also hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them, and between them they rolled the huge lion round on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemies straining and tugging pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. He was so huge that even when they got him there, it took all their effort to hoist him onto the surface of it. Then there was more tying and tightening of cords. When once Aslan had been tied, and tied so that he was really just a mass of cords, on the flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. The witch bared her arms, then she began to wet her knife. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the knife were made of stone, not steel, and as of a strange and evil shape. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and had covered their eyes. There was a great price that was paid to rescue us from dark felt of sin and unrighteousness. And we are a people who live in light of that price that was paid. Now, spoiler alert, you should know that Aslan, like Christ, rises in triumph. Later, Lewis would write, there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had grown again, stood Aslan himself. And he comes back to free Edmund and Tom and all the creatures from their bondage to the White Witch. And Narnia's long winter is finally over, and at last it is springtime. But make no mistake, in order to liberate Narnia, Aslan, like Christ, became a prisoner. In order, friend, to liberate you from the sin and shame and regret of our lives, Christ became a prisoner and died on your behalf and mine. It was the price that had to be paid. And it is there, only there, friends, that you and I are made righteous in the sight of God 
God in his grace freely made us right, and he did this solely through his son's sacrifice on the cross. A diamond has now hit the felt. The man or woman of faith has committed themselves to the truth of Jesus and is no longer looking to himself or herself, but rather looking away and looking to Jesus to be saved. Only those who stop relying upon their own endeavors, their own deeds, their own morality, their own religion will ever enter into the full benefit of the provision that Christ has has given to us. If this righteousness, which is so necessary, does not become ours as a result of our endeavors, how do we get it? How can we be sure in this moment that we haven't swapped one set of commandments for another? How do we know? John 1.12, to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. I'm, I'm really not very good at math, but there seems like there's a pretty simple formula there or equation Believe and accept means we become. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. Believe the way he said that the way the way he said he was. Believe that he was born and lived and he died, that he rose from the grave and that he's coming back again. Believe it. Believe that Jesus Christ is the substitution for your sin. Believe it. Accept that grace into your life. Say, Jesus Christ, I accept your grace. I accept your unfailing love. I accept the fact that you want to wash away my sins and forgive me for all my sin, all my screw up, and all my moral failures. I want that grace applied to my life, and I want you to lead my life. And then, friends, we become the right to be called children of God. Believe and accept and become a child of God. What does that mean to be a child of God? What it means is you are now a new creation. God has given you a brand new identity off of the black felt and into the diamond, if you will. God says, this is your new identity now. I am free forever from condemnation. Someone say amen. I am assured that God works all things together for good. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am confident that God will finish the good work he started in me. I am a citizen of heaven. I am hidden with Christ. I've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. I can find mercy and grace to help in times of need. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. That's who you are. And in Christ... In Christ, I am not only accepted, I am not only secure, but in Christ, I am now deeply significant. God says, I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I am a branch of the true vine. Jesus, the channel of his life. I've been chosen in this life to bear fruit. I'm a personal spirit-empowered witness of Christ. I am a temple of God. He lives in me. I'm a minister of reconciliation for God. I am God's co-worker. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I am God's workmanships created for good works. I may approach God with freedom and confidence that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's who you are. That's who you are. You can't behave your way there. 
Now that you know, now that you have eyes to see, now that you've heard, here's Tom trying to behave his way. And here's the immense sacrifice of the Son of God who set me free. Which of these paths do you think is the path to righteousness? See, the beautiful thing about Christianity for me, the Bible doesn't just say God has an unfailing love, but God proved it on a cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I have come to take away the sins of the world. And today you can believe that and you can accept that and you can become the person that God's always wanted you to be, his most loved child. And so I would invite you, maybe for the first time, maybe this whole time it hasn't worked because you keep trying to behave your way. I want to invite you to accept and believe and accept what Jesus did on your behalf and through that become a child of God. I want to invite you to do that. What does it look like? Well, it's really your business with God. Some of us grew up in traditions where we love to go to an altar and some of our campuses have altars and some of us have subwoofers. (laughs) But hey, if that's where you need to respond to God, then you do that. You're welcome to come forward and and do that if you'd like to receive God. Or you can do it in your chair right where you are. You can do it on one of the prayer rooms all across our campuses. Just go in there and say, hey, I want someone to pray with me about accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Can someone do that? And they will. But most important thing is you make a decision. Now listen, others of you, you've been walking with Jesus for a while. But you don't feel his power in your life. You've got yourself cleaned up. You're doing some right things. But maybe you've never felt the power of God in your life because you've never relied on it to save you. And I just want to encourage you for some, don't be surprised if God doesn't tap your heart in this moment. Hey, it's because of me. I did this for you. It's not on you. You believe, you accept, I will make you a child of God. And if that's you, you should respond to that as well. We have this wonderful thing called the Matthew 13 Project for new believers. And uh, if you want to let me know you've made that decision, I'll, I'll walk with you through those first 21 days to help get this new thing established in your heart and life. But the most important thing, dear people, is this. Listen to what God would have you do in this moment. You listen. Don't let me determine that. You listen to what God would have you do, and if he asks you to do something, you obey. Because freedom is in the wind. (laughs) Freedom is in the wind. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the holiness of this moment. Thank you for the power of the message. Oh, God, your gospel sets people free. I'm grateful, Lord. I pray for all my friends here. Who are trying to determine right now, discern as your spirit speaks to them, what would God have me do? Whether here, the chapel, the campuses, online, if God is prompting your heart to make a move, then I encourage you to make a move. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
for others who maybe say, you know, I think I've been trying to behave my way this whole time, and I haven't been living in the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. By the power of you, Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd set us free, that you would set us free, sinners saved by grace, embracing the diamond all the way to eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.